to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you, this gentleman today, he was on my show in March of 2015. And I remember I had saw him on an episode of Criminal Minds. And he played this really intense character. And I, I found him online. And I hit him up. And he came to the studio in Burbank. And now, eight years later, he's back. And he's a regular on CSI Vegas. He's got a lot going on. And my guest is Lex Medlin. How you doing, Lex? I'm doing all right. Was it that long ago? Eight years ago? Yeah, I was looking. I was sitting Because you forget. Because I, I moved back east six years ago. And I was right. like, I was like, what? when? And then you look and you go, oh, my God. And it is. It's amazing how time flies. Oh yeah, and a lot's <laughs> a lot's happened uh, in those eight years, as is typical of the life of, a, of an actor. Now I got to ask you: the strike, the strike is over, and and are you happy with the with the results? Are you happy with what you guys got? And I mean, how do you I, I feel? Haven't seen the, I haven't seen the full deal yet. Um, I th- the biggest issue is is AI, and that's not just an issue in entertainment. That's I saw. In, uh, something the other day and it, it's an issue across the board in society it's it's really going to be kind of the next thing that we have to navigate or it could get very out of control and very bad very quickly and you know it, it's what's one of these things that i haven't seen what the deal is yet um but you know we we have to renegotiate in basically two and a half years and so we're going to have to see how this unfolds uh, obviously i don't want uh, synthetic characters taking over human beings jobs because that's the end of of our business. And I think it's the, creatively the end of, of the business in some form. So it, I, we're going to have to see, we're going to have to keep negotiating it. Um, you know, I think the human aspect obviously is still the most important aspect of, of the arts. So we have to keep it, we have to keep in play. Now I got to ask you because, you know, you are a regular on a show. Now when the strike comes, now as I said, in eight years, you've constantly worked. You're someone who works a lot. But like anything, it's an up and down business. You know, it's something you get exactly. a few roles. But now you're on the show. It's a franchise. I mean it's a CSI, Vegas. It's a it's a popular show. You have the job. What was it like going through your mind when you're sitting there going, Okay, finally I I'm I'm on the CBS series and then uh, we're on strike. What went through your mind? Because it must have been like, holy shit, this, this, this is not good. I've been doing it 30 years, and it's been ups and downs. After Diva, and I was making some okay money on Diva. Not crazy, but some good money. And then uh, I came back, and the year after I got back, I did an okay year. I, I did like eight commercials and some guest stars and did made my middle class living. But then from that point on, every year it got worse and worse to the point where three years ago, I didn't qualify for SAG insurance, which you're required to make gross $25,000 in a year. And you lived in L.A., you know that making $25,000 isn't going to get you anything. So the fact that I didn't even qualify for that, things were looking really bleak. We had even opened a frozen yogurt shop trying to just find income that wasn't entertainment related. And then in May of last year... I went on a little tear. I did Mayans. I did uh, Raven's Home. I did a couple of Dairy Queen commercials. So I was I was trying to claw my way back. And then out of nowhere, I booked this. And literally, it all happened in I think, 10 days from the time I put myself on a self-tape to a Thursday afternoon. My agent called and said, you just passed network. You booked. You have to drive tomorrow to Santa Clarita to do publicity. You start on Monday. And then I show up to set on Monday. And I look at one of the executives. I'm like, when do we wrap? And he's like, well, we're doing 21 episodes. We wrap next February. And it was like my entire life just changed in 10 days. 
and you, you don't even have, have time to think about it. Um, and so then we go through the season and, you know, and then we hear we're getting a season three and you're right. There's a part of me going, well, this only took me 35 years to get this gig. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we're going to start May 24th. And I'm like, right on. Let's keep the, let's keep the money train going. Let's do this. And, and it's my, been my favorite job I've ever been on. And so, yeah. And then it was like the strike and I, it's just, I, I hung my head a little bit and it was like, can it ever just be easy ever? Can it just go smoothly? I mean, even Diva wasn't the normal route. I was supposed to be a four-episode arc, and then they made me a regular, and then I had to go to Georgia. You know what I mean? It's like, it was just never smooth. It's never smooth, it seems like. Now, don't misunderstand me. The most grateful I've ever been in my life. Literally, I get in my car every day, and I don't put on the radio when I'm going to work, and I, I spend 15 minutes just going over how grateful I am. Maybe that's just a product of getting older, too, being 54, and just appreciating when things are good. Um, but yeah, when, when, it, when I, when I first heard about the strike, it was like, are you kidding me? And then I thought, you know, it's going to go on for like three months. I've been doing this 30 years. I've been through strikes in the past. And then it just kept going and going and the bank accounts kept dwindling and dwindling. And it was like, can we just get back into the thing we were doing? But it's over. I'm supposed to start, I think December 1st and CBS just released, uh, February 18th as the air date from the beginning. So I don't know what season three entails in terms of how many we're going to do, but uh, I'm going to show up and do it. Now, you said earlier that is, this is your favorite job. Why is it your favorite job? Um, it's just it, it, every single department on this show, I've never experienced it, is at the top of their game. I mean, from craft service to catering to wardrobe to makeup, everybody is so good at what they do even our, our two camera operators i watch them when, when we're shooting and they're they're constantly moving and doing this dance with each other and then when i see the end result i mean it looks like a little 45 minute movie it's just this is beautiful even all the special effects they put in and all the directors and then the, and the big one is the cast too it's 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 very much my family away from my family and everybody's really supportive from like second one i kind of made a speech about listen because we all have to say ungodly amounts of science talk, which I've never had to do before. I mean, I thought legal was tough. Science talk is insanity. Um, that's why I spend most of my weekends just going over science, science, so go, so go, just science, all the science talk. And uh, everybody understands, like, hey, if you're the one who's got a bunch to do in this scene, and you know, if you're struggling with it, everybody just stay calm, help each other out, support each other. We'll get through it because we all know that each one of us is going to have scenes where we have to say all this insanity so we're going to help each other as much as we possibly can and they do without even really i didn't need to say it everybody automatically does it's a very very loving environment and hey steve the money doesn't suck we're on two episodes of the old csi right you, you had a, a little recurring twist did that did that come into play did they remember you or do you know i mean no thank god because i don't know <laughs> if that would have made a difference or not and then ironically i show up to set and uh, the guy who does the director who does all our inserts. There's a lot of insert shots during an episode, and he does all of them. He, he's one of the most important people on the show. But ironically, I get the set, and he goes, "Hey, do you remember me? I directed the episode you were in, whatever, ten years. His name is Brad Tannenbaum. He's actually directing episode one of this of season three. But I, I kind of looked at him. And I was like, "Shut up, shut up. Don't say anything. Nobody needs to know. Nobody needs to know." And then an article came out about it. And then the article was saying, "Hey, there's been other shows in, in the history of TV where people came back as different." characters and whatnot and and the two characters are very very different um and 
no. Yeah, luckily, I don't think they knew. That might have been an issue, but I wasn't about to say anything because I wanted a job. Now, when you auditioned for this, for this role, you said it was a self-tape audition. What do you oh. prefer? Do you prefer taping or in a room? Because I get, I get two different stories. Like Liz Vassy said, she prefers sometimes taping because her husband's a cinematographer, so she oh. has the perfect shot. But I know other people who say... No man, I miss the room. A lot of people with a background in theater say that. I, like I want to, I want to sell it. What do you like better? It's a mix. Uh, similar to Liz, uh, my wife is a in commercial casting. She runs commercial casting sessions. So, and she was one of the premier runners during COVID because she learned all of the technology and she kind of went to the top of the list. Of, so I was lucky that I had a wife who knows how to edit. She literally puts me up in my place. All I do is memorize my lines and make my choices. She puts the backdrop, sets me up. I shoot it. She goes into her magic little thing and edits it down. And, and so in that aspect, I was kind of ahead of the curve. And I was very fortunate that I had that. That said, not having the room, you completely lose any feel for it. I've been doing it long enough where I got to the point where I could leave an audition room, call my people and be like, get ready. They're going to be calling you. Or call my people and be like, don't even bother calling them. That was horrible. And I, I had a really good, like, I was pretty accurate about 90% of the time. And when you do a self-tape, you put it on tape, you know, your wife says, yeah, look good. And then it goes off into the nether world and you, you have no clue. You have no clue if it was any good or not. You don't get any feedback. So you, you just, you really lose any feel for if you're doing a good job, if you're not doing a good job. And that is, I mean, that is brutal. But that said, I mean, I've had to test network tests as a final audition when you're going in for a show. And I've tested, I think, at every network. And, you know, you got to go into this sometimes like NBC was a small room with like 25 suits in there. And I remember CBS, I think it was less, might have been. But anyway, there was one time we were, doing a, we were supposed to be doing a comedy. And it, one of the main execs had given a note that nobody was allowed to laugh because it distracted them. But I'm up there as an actor doing a comedy and nobody's laughing. And by the time I got to the second steam, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling bunnies out of my ass. I'm trying to do anything imaginable, trying to get these people to laugh. And it, it's such a, a brutal, brutal uh, process. Now, that said, I think they also want to see if you're good under pressure. Because part of the job is you got to be good under pressure. And if you can get through a test, you can get through pretty much anything. So, to go answer your question, there are aspects of both that are great. The room, having a feel for if you're doing a good job or not, or and getting direction too. That's the other thing on a self tape. You know, when you're in the room, sometimes maybe you're you're really good, but you just you missed something, and the director just wants to see you do it a different way, and he goes, "Do it again, but do this," and you can make that correction right there, and then you get the job because you were able to do it. But on a self tape, that's not a luxury. It's literally whatever you think it is, send it out there, and hopefully it's right. And you just you don't know. Tell me about your audition for. Uh... CSI, because you played Bo, but what did you know going into this? Did you know it was going to be for series regular, or were they were you not sure? Like, was it sit there and they go, you see it, which it's going to put a little pressure on you because being a series regular can change your financial life. So it's got to get in your head. But what did you look when you got called for the audition? What did it say? It said series regular, and to be honest, <clears throat> you're you're very accurate because. I think I even said to my wife, there's no way in hell they're casting a, a series regular off of the self-tape. This must just be for casting to have some actors in the books in case whatever name they have drops out. I, I, I was thinking that. Now, the issue was I just finished an, a, a, an episode, ended up being a couple episodes of Mayans, where I was playing a pedophile, fun role. 
And then I went and I did a Dairy Queen commercial in the middle, and and I was in the middle of taping for the show, uh, Disney show Raven's Home, where I was playing a racist cop because I'm just all over the board at this point. Um, and so I had a, a beard for Mayans, and then I went to shave it, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm going in for a cop. I'll, uh, I left the mustache, kind of as a joke. I was like, this looks so ridiculous, like a '70s cop. And of course, they hired me. And so I put myself on the self-tape. I, I shot Thursday, Friday on Raven's Home. I get the thing. It's a series regular. Again, I'm thinking there's no way they're casting a series regular off of the self-tape. It's too too important of a, of a, of a role. Uh, but I do it, of course. And I did. i got to be honest. I, it doesn't happen very often. It happened with Happy Hour. It happened with Diva. And it happened with this where I kind of looked at it and I went, oh, I think this is mine. And that does, I don't say that very often at all. But it was one of those weird things where I went, I'm going to give them my take, and if they like it, this part's mine. So I, I, I submitted it over the weekend. That was, uh, and then I had to go back and shoot Ravens Home Monday, Tuesday, and a night shoot on Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, my people call and say, tomorrow, Thursday, you have a producer session via Zoom for CSI Vegas. So I log on, just like I'm logging on with you. Uh, I do the entire audition. We do it a couple of times. Then, then I am getting direction. I'm reading with the casting director. We go through it. I do two scenes, finish. That was Thursday. And then uh, on Friday, my people call and said, they're going to test you. And with that, you know, the old days, you'd go into the room. Now they take your tape and they show it to the studio. The studio likes you. The studio sends you and whoever else they like onto the network. The network picks who gets the gig. So instead of going in the room now, they take your tape. And they were kind of doing this before COVID even, where the last time I tested, I didn't go in front of a room. I went into a room with the director and the producer and the writer, and we and they had it set up, lit really, really well, and set up to film. But they filmed our test, and then they sent that to the studio and network. And I guess maybe that was the new thing. That way, the, the, maybe the studio didn't want to deal with actors anymore either. I don't know. Or the network was tired of actors coming in and being nervous and freaking out. But um, so that was that was how the whole process. Yeah, I didn't initially. I thought there's no way they're going to cast it, but now. Now it makes sense that they did the producer session, and off of that, they booked the they booked the role. And yeah, life changed. Now you're you're a pro. So you've been doing this for a long time. The commercials, the TV shows. When it comes to something like that, as I said, because the CSI name holds a lot of clout. You know, anything on CBS, but CSI, NCIS, anything, it's big thing. Were you nervous? Because you know, everyone gets a little nervous. But were you? Did you put more added pressure on you because you knew it was? part of a franchise and you know that if the ratings are good they're going to keep this thing going for a while does it as an actor because you're a professional but does that put a little more of a little curl in your stomach because it's like man i really want this in terms of the audition or just in terms of thinking about it or both both in terms of the audition no because luckily i i was working on this other thing at the time so i wasn't i was i had to focus on something else too so i just focused on the audition and did it and let it go uh, once I got it, th- I mean, there, it's impossible not to realize, oh, this, I'm 54. I mean, if this has any kind of run, this could get me to retirement. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. It, it crosses my mind. That said, I've been doing this a long time. And I mean, we were doing season six of Diva and I was convinced we were going to get a seven because of the way all the contracts lined up and everything. And we didn't. And it, it, even I was with the showrunner at dinner and he got the text saying we were canceled. And he just looked at me like, what? and it's, my point is, is this business, you just don't know. And I'm not cynical about it at all. I'm just very practical about it. And I go about it and go, okay, this is what we have right now. We had 21 episodes last year. We had now, I don't, we're going to see how many we have in three. But 
compared to anything else in the business, I mean, it is a dinosaur to some extent. These don't exist anymore. They just don't. Things are mostly streaming 10 episodes, 13 episodes, no residuals. You know, that's, that's been, that is the new norm. So something like this, it feels like a miracle sometimes. I, I seriously pinch myself because I'm like, how did I, how did the stars line up for me on this? And then I just kind of go, you know what? I put my time in. You know that. You've only known me eight years, but I've been doing it 30 years. And sometimes the gods um, smile on you. And I'll, I'll take it. Now, now, what do you like about the character? What do you like about Bo? What, what makes it a fun character? Because sometimes, you know, actors will get a role and they're like, yeah, you know, go on, the role sort of sucks. I mean, to be honest, sometimes people go, you get stuck in a position where you're like, oh, God, I got to sit there and say, hey, Johnny, every other five words. But for you, what do you like about the role? Because it seems like you're having fun on it. And it must be great because you probably cherish it more because as you said you've been in the business for a long time and now the stars align and you get this role what do you like about the character it's it it is it is the best character on any of these shows it's the quirky lab guy who has to be really smart he's a he's a genius but then he gets to say the funny shit at the end uh, uh, and i don't know what it, i don't know what it is but none of these people i haven't worked with a lot of these the the showrunner and the and the, the writers they think I'm hilarious because I, I am notorious for at the end of even the most dramatic of scenes in my head. I know when I know when we're going to cut out of it. You know, there's the pause, the, that, that dramatic pause at the end of a scene and they maybe they're coming in on your face. And then I know in my head when they're done with the scene. And so I have a tendency to say some of the most inappropriate stuff you can imagine at the end of that. And it keeps the crew just erupting in laughter, which you, you, you kind of need if you're going to be shooting something for nine months, you got to, you got to have fun. And uh, this group, so far, we'll see how long it lasts, but they seem to think I'm hilarious. So uh, it's it's really nice. And in, I, I mean, you know me. I mean, I've done I've done both. I did Southland, for God's sakes. You don't get more dramatic than Southland. But then I did Friends. You don't get more funny than Friends. And I've done both. So to actually have a part where I get to do both is, it's un- again, the, the stars aligned. I mean... I get to say some of the funniest stuff at the end of things, and they write it that way, and the writers know how to write it, which is nice. That doesn't always happen on a show. But then, like, episode 11 was called Trinket. It's, it's where I find the boy, this boy, and, I mean, the end of the scene, I'm just looking at my kid crying, and it's and it's just nice that they that they allow me to, to, do, to cover the spectrum. And they trust me. I mean, I've been on shows where people are like, no, 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 he only does comedy. Or I've been on shows where they're like, no, 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 don't make him do funny. He's just a drama guy. And the fact that they're like, no, he can do both, and they'll write for it is really is one of the biggest gems you can get as an actor. I still can't believe it happened. Now, I want to talk to you about Diva, because it's funny. When, when you first came on my show, Diva was just wrapping up. And I'll be honest, I didn't watch Diva. You know, I mean, it's something that's not like you're sitting there with your buddies and go, hey, let's crack some beers and watch Drop That Diva. But my wife was watching it, and I, I would walk through, and she'd have it on nights. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there. And then and I was saying her today, I was like, you know, I feel bad. I said, Lex, his, his character got wronged, man. Like, like, like he was such a nice guy, and and she was kissing on the wedding day. But how did how did Diva come about? And how did you say it was supposed to be four episodes and it ended up becoming a series regular? But how, was, was it originally? I mean, did they like you, or what was the role? How did you get that job? The original script. I actually did another podcast that was just on Diva. These two gals who are obsessed with Diva, and I told them that the original script. They brought this up. Was he was a thirty-year-old uh, surfer, the judge, right? And at that point, I was my late thirties, close to forty, and wasn't in the best shape. Still aren't. 
Um, but my point is, I, I was looking at the script going, why am I even going in for this? 30 year old, and I was looking at it going, 30 year old surfer who's a judge? Come on, people. Let's, let's, let's get the grown ups in the room and write something appropriate here. Uh, but then I went in and it went so well because I think I told you when I was on your show initially that that week, I, uh, my son was born on Monday, Cedar Sinai. My wife had a C-section and the audition was on Thursday. And, you know, the, the week your child was born, by the time Thursday rolled around, I hadn't slept. I was exhausted. And I wasn't about two hours before I wasn't going to go into the audition. I just I didn't. It was a lot of legal. It was eight pages of legal. I was a judge. And I wasn't going to go in. I was like, I can't. I'm, I'm not going to make a fool out of myself. And at the last minute, I ran it out in my office, and it went okay. And I, my mother-in-law was staying, and I said, hey, let me go audition for this. Just, I don't want to, it was, Carol Kritzer was casting, and I love her. She's one of my favorite casting directors. I didn't want to disappoint her. So I went in, and then uh, the next morning at 10 a.m., they called and said, um, <clears throat> the lighting was bad in the room. You need to come back in by, by noon. And of course, my initial response was, yeah, screw that. I'm not doing that. I've, I've already forgotten the lines. Ten minutes later, I call my people. I'm like, yeah, okay, okay, I'm going to go back in, you know. And they're like, yeah, we figured. We know you. So I went into the show creator, Josh Berman's office, auditioned there. Got it. Unbeknownst to me, Brooke Elliott, who was the lead of Diva, they were in Georgia showing her pictures of guys they were considering. And she was like, no, no. And they showed her my picture, and she went, that's the one. And it was like, oh. And then I show up to Georgia and her and I became, we're still, I just talked to her last night for two hours. We're, we're, we became very, very good friends. Nothing kinky. I'm happily, faithfully married to my wife, 22 years. But her and I connected and became very, very good. Brooke and I good friends. And I think that chemistry read on camera because that's what everybody in the articles was talking about, the chemistry, which we didn't even think about. We just enjoyed hanging out with each other on set. But um, the chemistry read, and I don't think that had happened for a lot of her love interests. So for some reason, because of that, people actually started to think about maybe her character being with my character as opposed to her character being with Grayson. And it, yeah, and I think, I, I know I tested really well and it was the first time that, that opportunity had existed. So that's why in the off season, suddenly uh, I went I went to the, the creator was having a party at his house, a rap party, and he was showing the last two episodes of season three. And I walked into his house and he came up to me, he goes, we wanna make a deal with you. And I'm like, no, oh, okay, well, call my people. I, 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 I'm not going to make a deal right here, but yeah, call my people. I, I'd love to make a deal. Uh, yeah, and they did. They did. But I mean, the end of episode, th I mean, it was so funny. The, the last episode in season three, she's on a plane to go to Rome, and you think it's Grace, the Grayson character, and you hear a voice say, is this seat taken? And they turn, and it's me. And I'm, and I'm reading the script in my hotel going, oh, it's Owen. Look at that. And I finished the script, and I put the script down, and I went, Holy, I'm Owen. Oh my God, she's running away with me. And I, I call my people. I'm like, did they call you? Because her character's running away with my character. They're like, no, they haven't said anything. Uh, but I had to like process the entire thing right there in some hotel room in Peachtree City. But um, yeah, and then it, I did 10 of 13 on four, and then I was all episodes uh, five and six. Now, now, did people come up to you and feel bad for you because she, she did you wrong? I mean, she's like, well, but as I said, I was pissed. I was like, hey, man, she just did Lex wrong. That's not, that shit's not cool. I mean, no, did, did you get no, a sympathetic, uh, like, like Timothy Buzzfield told me when he was Elliot on 30-something, he was at a Gelson's in Studio City, and a woman hated him so much for his character, she came up and she smacked him. Now, for you, though, did people come up and go, man, we're sorry that happened to you. No, but it is it is funny to me, for whatever reason, 
that character was polarizing in that people would come up and it was either, hey, love your work on Diva, but I'm Team Grayson. Or, hey, love your work on Diva, I'm totally Team Owen. And it would literally be one or the other. It was There was no just, hey, we're watching a TV show. People had to pick teams and let me know. But everybody everybody was, was really uh, gracious to me about it. Because people, people are endeared by that show, man. And it's foreign. Holy crap. Overseas, that thing is so popular, uh, which I wasn't aware of. When I, same as you. I'd never seen an episode when I signed on for it. I'd seen a billboard of it somewhere, but I'd never seen an episode. I didn't know what it was about. I mean, kind of knew. Uh, but, uh, no, everybody for the most part has just been really, really, really gracious. I'm trying to think if there are ever roles. No, I've never had any role where somebody wanted to hit me, other than my wife. Um yeah, nothing too bad like that. But it doesn't surprise me that yeah, people people take their TV very seriously. Well, I want to talk to you about some of your commercials, too, because I, I, I did some Googling. Man, I'll tell you, you forget because you, you go through. I mean, there's a commercial when you're the the, the ref, and Aaron Rodgers has got to be like, he's so young in that one. I mean, it, it's amazing. When yep. did you when did you start booking commercials? You moved. I want to find out. I want to talk about how you got into acting. But when you yep. moved to L.A., how long did it take? Did, were you starting getting TV spots first or commercials no, first? Commercials. The commercials for the first... If it wasn't for commercials, I wouldn't be here. They literally kept me afloat for 15 years. And they even kept me really going up until... I had a pilot before Diva, and we did 13. But then I went back into the, the mix, and I, commercials kept me afloat again. They were the thing... That in, now this is back. They're all non-union now. I mean, eighty percent of them are. So you can't make that middle-class money like I made for a long time. That when I was doing Diva, the guest stars were coming in and telling me, "Hey, everything's going to hell back home." And sure enough, by the time I got back home, it, it just didn't exist. That's why all my numbers dropped so drastically. But back then, you could do six to ten commercials a year and make your uh, middle-class, maybe middle lower, but middle-class living uh, in L.A. And for me, the biggest thing. Because I remember when I got out of acting school, the Academy of Dramatic Arts, there were people, you know, we're young, 20, 21 years old, and there were people who were like, oh, I won't do commercials. And I was like, that's fine, get the hell out of my way, because I'm, I'm doing them. And by the time I booked my first theatrical gig, which is the original 90210, I had already done, I don't know, probably five or six commercials, but I was already getting comfortable in front of the camera. And you, you can't get comfortable in front of the camera unless you're doing it. You have to be there on a set with 50 people watching you do some reaction shot or whatever you're having to do that day or come up with funny stuff over and over. And no class, no no class is going to teach you that. The best way I learned was doing it on, on commercials. And they're basically, you know, they're 25, there's product placement. They're, they're 25 second little things. It's usually one bit or two bits. And the audition process you as the actor, part of your responsibility, a lot of times it's not on the page. So you have to come up with, it's almost like being in an improv class. You have to come up with funny stuff to make it work. And that that's a really good exercise to have to do over and over and over again. It kind of keeps the, your, your improv muscles going. And, uh, and if you're good at it, you can separate yourself and book, book more. But yeah, I, I came out, I was, I, I was just messing around in L.A. for about two years after school. I was at the Academy of Dramatic Arts. We technically weren't allowed to audition, which is stupid, but whatever. Um, I think I did, because I got an agent. Uh, but I really didn't book much first, and I booked a Raisin... No, Bennigan's commercial was my first one where I was 
a cook in a thing pulling a giant chicken. It was a, a rope with a huge chicken, and it was dragging me and this other guy across the floor. And I thought I had made it. It was amazing. The raisin bran, and then the one that the one that launched it all <laughs> was uh, I got I had a, I had a day job, and I got laid off because the company went under, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And the next month, I booked a Geico spot where I go operator collect call from Bob. We add a baby eats a boy. And to this day, I've done 152 commercials, and it's still the biggest money maker. They just Stephen. They just in May, I got a call from my commercial agent and said, "Hey, they're going to re up your Geico." And I went from 27 years ago, and they're like, "Yeah, they are, and they're going to pay you this." And I went, "Okay, let's do that." Is... I don't know what they did with it. It was only one cycle. But and even three years ago, they called and said they're doing a, a Geico's best spot thing. They're going to re up your Geico, and I went, "We got a problem here, guys." And like, what? And I said, "Nobody's going to understand it." I'm a guy on a payphone. We showed it to my kids, and they just had blank faces. And my wife went, "Okay." So there used to be a thing called a payphone, and you had to go, and there was a, the phone company was on, there, and you want, and she had to explain all of it. And needless to say. It didn't do well in the competition because an entire generation doesn't understand it. But I think it was about two and a half years ago, I got a text from somebody and it was, there was, it was a meme and it was me on the phone in the spot. And it said, if you don't remember, Bob, we had a baby. It's a boy. You're too young for me. And for some reason, out of everything I've done, that made me smile. I was just like, I made it. I'm a meme. I finally made it after all these years. Well, it's funny how they show those commercials because I found out there's a, uh, for the Pennsylvania lottery uh, tickets, there's a Christmas commercial they show. And I was going on the West Coast for a long time. People were like, this show's been around for like 20, 20 odd years. And there's people caroling and it's a, it's a commercial and they keep running it. I'm thinking, well, it's probably non-union because it's Pennsylvania lottery. But I'm probably. thinking they're going to give their people their, you know, $2,500 for the few months buyout. Yeah, and then they use it for uh, all eternity. That's that's the problem with uh, non-union. Now, what was it like with the Aaron Rodgers commercial? Because that's a funny commercial. And were you actually in front? Was was that a? Were you actually in front of a crowd, or was that something sort of like a? We were on Lambo. We were on okay. Lambo. Well, we weren't allowed to touch the field. That that was no joke. I made a joke about doing it once, and two security guys came out and almost manhandled me because they're like, nobody touches the field, and I was like, take it easy. Um, but we were on the sideline. I would say it was. Two to three hundred extras. Now that, that's the second spot I've done with Aaron. Ironically, same director, Matt Asselton. He's one of my favorite commercial directors ever. I'd done a spot with Aaron before where it was a back to school night at school, and I was a cop and somebody was a fireman and Aaron was the quarterback. And we were in a little schoolroom somewhere in Green Bay and we shot it. And then about a year or two later, I get this ref spot and uh, it wasn't easy. I had to. I don't know if you remember it, but I, I have to say a lot of copy really fast uh and i had to do it over and over and over uh but it turned out good and then you probably won't remember either there used to be a referee named fred cashin and i i was oh he said that when i say in the commercial i go first down it's a complete homage to this referee back in the 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 70s and 80s is that that's how he would say first down uh but no yeah it was uh, it was fun it was fun i met him couldn't more could be a more laid-back guy and I give him credit because at the end of the spot, it's him and I talking at the tunnel and me going, I can't believe I blew that. I can't believe that. And he and I say something like 20 or, you know, 80,000 people. 70,000 people. Yeah. And he says, 20 million more watching at home. And that was supposed to be the end of the spot. 
And then I start to walk away. And to Aaron's credit, he starts going, 71 million on Twitter. But he just starts naming off all the area, all, every social media you can think of. And you get to the point where I go, I got it, Aaron. And I kind of throw my arm up. And that's what they ended up using, which I loved because it was in the moment. I give credit to Aaron that, that that's some acting going on there where he just kept coming up with more and more, more and more stuff. And, you know, he's an athlete, but he, he can act, too. Now, who who were you running into in those early days? I'm trying to think when you were auditioning, when you first went down. I'm probably thinking, you know, when you go for the commercials, were you, like, running, was it, like, Chip Chinnery? Was yep. it, like, there's yep. some, I'm trying to think, like, the guys, because it's so funny. People don't understand. There's certain groups, like, you know, and I interview a lot of character actors, and you can tell right off, like, okay, you know, Larry Poindexter and Spencer Garrett, they're auditioning for the same it's thing. Great. You know, there's certain things. Who were some of the guys you were running into back in those early days? Because Chip also did a shit ton of commercials. Uh, it was pretty much the same guys. Chip Chinnery, uh, I'm blanking on names. You caught me on the spot, but it, you would, you would, you probably interviewed some, and if you didn't, you would recognize them. They're all guys that back in that in those days, we all would kind of get into the room and look at each other, and we all. The good thing about it was, we all knew how arbitrary it can be to some extent. And hey, maybe on that day, I just come up with the funny thing to say in the audition, and that gets me the role. Maybe it's you. But we, we never, there, there really wasn't a, a crazy sense of competition. The, the, the ego was taken out. And the biggest factor was we, we could talk to each other about the business. I always tell people, young people, actors, I'm like, don't, don't be competitive with the other people in the room. It won't serve you in any way whatsoever. I said, listen, your mom is going to appreciate your acting career. She's never going to understand it. The only people on this planet who are going to fully understand the experience you're going through are the other people in that room because they're doing it too and it's sometimes you need to be able to talk to people about just the insanity of driving to four different auditions and <clears throat> not getting any of them or whatever whatever the days are like but yeah it was the same group of guys over and over and over again um i seem to be the one that although larry larry uh, point extra he, he worked theatrically quite a bit too uh but i i seem to be one that got a lot more a little more theatrical now, why'd you get into acting? You know, you always think about why, I mean, and it's so funny because no one ever sits there and from talking to actors, you get it. No one tells them, especially in acting school, it's a hard freaking life. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it is, you know, you sit there and eat, people could be acting and acting. I know someone who writes for a show and they said like Max Van Sindow, they had him audition and it's like, it's Max Van Sindow. Like, you know, the guy is legendary but what legend what what made you were you a kid were you were you a funny kid or what made you want to get into acting steve i'll be completely honest with you i got into it for all the wrong reasons my dad left uh, early and my mom was a busy single mom working so most of my memories of childhood i was i was alone i walked home from school alone and by then the first grade in northern colorado and so you know there was a bit of a void there and then one day i'm with my friend tommy and he did uh, speech and debate, which, you know what that is, speech and debate in high school, yeah. where you have to, you're the speech portion, you have to act out 10 minutes of, of a play, but you do every character, and you start, you're, you're doing the guy, and you're doing the girl, and you're, and you're going all the different characters. And I saw him, he was rehearsing this thing, and I saw him doing it, and I was like, well, I want to try that. <laughs> and then, like, I think what happens to a lot of people, I get up there, and people respond. And all of a sudden, this little void that I was feeling felt full briefly. Now... It's the worst reason to get into it because for every every person, there's a person here who thinks you're great. There's someone who thinks you suck. I mean, it's just the nature of, and especially in this day and age with social media, everybody's got an opinion. 
So it is the it's the worst reason. It's probably the biggest reason people get into it because the the not the love not the love me love me love me aspect of it, but it's the worst reason. But then in my late twenties, I got therapy, uh, group therapy. I did a, I did a lot of work on myself, and I got to the point I had a, I had a come to Jesus moment where it was like it was in my early thirties where I I I had taken care of that portion of myself where I didn't need to fill this void anymore. But then I looked at myself and I had the same thing as you. I went, this is a really hard business. Do I want to do this? Because this is, this is, I've been lucky and it's been brutal. I've been in the top 1% of a lot of psych actors and it's been brutal to the point where we opened a frozen yogurt shop for God's sakes, just trying to, just trying to stay afloat. But the story I always tell is we took us seven months to open it. We own it. We got to work there. Day three of it being open. We finally get it open. Yay. Big cheers. Day three, I'm in the back washing a yogurt barrel my wife's in the office the door open and i put the barrel down and i look at her and she goes what and i went fuck this i don't want to do this anymore and for me that's what that shop was to some extent was i thought maybe i would because you know things had been going so badly i thought maybe i guess my career's over and i think maybe i'm done i'm tired and that kind of showed me no you're an actor that's what you're supposed to do it's where you're the happiest even when it's hard Get yourself back in the game and go do it. And then now we'll look at level where I am now. Well, that's, you know, and that's good to say, but I mean, there has to be other times where you were, I mean, you were still auditioning, but was there, has there ever been a time that you just, before the yoga shop, that you just said, I'm giving up? I, you know, I can't, I mean, because the bottom line is, the human can possibly, you can only take so much rejection. And as you say, you do four auditions in one day, you know, when you walk out of the room. You're not going to get it. But then most people don't sit there and go, like, I know a lot of business people. They don't go to four sales calls a day where right then it's a decision. You know, they'll work the process. But has there ever been a time that you were just saying, I I just want to, I can't do I can't do it anymore? Uh, not, not necessarily. Because the thing that I try to explain to people, too, is for whatever reason, and I don't know how this happened, but from, from the very beginning of my career, or me even just acting, I've never taken it personally, ever. I've never at any point walked out of a room where they said, even if they could look me in the face and go, you suck, you're horrible, get out of here. And I'd be like, eh, whatever, that's too bad for them, they're not gonna get me. I've been disappointed about not getting jobs. I've never, ever taken it personally where I felt bad on myself. And because of that, I've always approached it where, do the audition, forget about it, move to the next one. Do the, go to the next one, go to the next one. Oh, you want me? Great. Go shoot it. Boom. Give me the next audition. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. To some extent, a numbers game. Just keep keep doing and keep doing a good job every single time. That's the I always say opening night performance. Every audition doesn't be perfect, but it's it's not just you reading the page. You gotta make choices. You gotta get off book. You gotta get everything ready. So when you go in the room, they're seeing what you're bringing to the equation. But to answer your question, not really. I th- there was a little bit of it, like I said, right before the yogurt shop where I just thought I can't, but it was more about, I can't get hired. Uh, I- I'm an older male in this business right now. It's just the-, the work isn't there. And so it wasn't me thinking I'm tired of the business as much as the business just doesn't want me right now. And that, that whole group of guys that we were talking about earlier that were in the waiting room that you know, recognize all of them. Everybody was going through the same thing going, I don't think you can make a living out here anymore. There is no, there is no more middle-class living. And that was my frustration too. Cause I was like, I'm not even asking to get rich. I don't care about any of that. 
I'm a middle class dude. I grew up middle class. I'm very, very happy there. I'm just asking for enough money to keep me there. That's all I need and I'll be happy. But even that didn't look like it was going to be available. So I never got to the point where I said I'm done, but I got to the point where I said the business is done with me. Now, you'd mentioned earlier happy hour and that was a pilot. Now, was that your first pilot that that is nope. that your first pilot? Because I know you got 13 episodes of that. Or he had, you had a that few. That was the first one that got picked up. Okay, yes. so, so what is it? You had a few before that. So as a young actor, what is it like when you get, I always say, you know, people say, oh, the pilot didn't get picked up. And I always say to people, you were in a pilot though. Like you got the part. That means you're, you're good enough to do it. It's just that the brass may not like it or the studio may like it. You know how people have been on TV shows where all of a sudden, like Lance Barber said, Mike and Molly. It was either him and someone, or they wanted to go heavier with uh, Billy Gardell. So it's not your call. But how did you handle earlier on when you'd get a pilot and it wouldn't get picked up? Where you just, where you, as you said, you don't take it personal, but it has to be really depressing. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And, but what I quickly learned was how, how arbitrary it is in the sense that. Like the very first pilot I did was called Bad Haircut, and it was the guy he, he wrote the script for Little the movie Little Children, which is uh, amazing, and he wrote the book uh, um, uh, Election that uh, Matthew Broderick did the movie uh, with with Reese Witherspoon. He wrote the book. I mean, this, it was it was a beautiful beautiful script, and to the point where even my people were like, "This is one of the best pilots I've ever seen." It didn't even get in the room to be considered, and if I'm completely honest, I thought Happy Hour was just a pilot paycheck. I never thought it would go. I was like, all right, let's get the pilot money and get me on to the next thing. And the next thing I know, I get in the call going, you're going to Upfronts in New York. So I cut, my point is, is I really don't know why things get picked up and why they don't. Again, to some extent, I'd stop taking it personally. The very first time, it's, it, it is gut right. You're thinking you're this close to making some real money. And then it, it just they're like, no, it didn't get picked up. It's over get back and then you have to go back into pilot season and it's like uh god i gotta go to this crap again but um i think the only time there was one time <laughs> i tested for modern family uh ty burrell's part and it was one of those when i was in waiting to go in to network i looked over at ty and i went oh this is his part and in hindsight when i saw it aired the, my version that i was doing was was darker where Ty has that incredible smile and he's got that vulnerability thing. I don't know what he, it's beautiful. And he does it and it absolutely is right. But I mean, I get to work session with Levitin Lloyd. I went through all of it and I was good because they, they like, they, they don't bring you to network unless you're, you know, you're good. Cause they might, you might get the part, but it was a very different version. But that was the one time when I did the work session with Levitin Lloyd, I called my wife and I never do this, but I called my wife and I said, that show's going to go and it's going to be a giant hit. I'm telling you right now. Just because of the way the script is and the way those guys worked, that was one of the few times that I knew, oh, that's going to be a giant hit. But I mean, if, Steve, if you watch the, the the pilot of Friends, in my opinion, it's borderline unwatchable. It's it's not good. The pilot of Seinfeld isn't very good. But then, a year later, I'm like everybody else. Every Thursday night, I got to watch it. I got to watch it. So, you just my point is, you just, you just don't know. You just don't know what's going to go and what's not. What season were you on Friends? I think, I want to say five. Okay, so so what was that like? Because it had to be, Jamie Keller had said something like when he walked on, how it was like a, just, it was, he was nervous because it was, they were a well-oiled machine. You know, they were, it's something that was kicking in, the writing was high. How was it for you to go on that set? Because 
They all, you know, they all have great timing. The the, the yeah. writing's phenomenal. And once again, you're a guest on the biggest, one of the biggest shows in the country. It was another one of those things, though, where at 5.45 p.m. on a Monday night, I'm coming down the 405, you remember the 405 into the valley, <laughs> and I'm looking at the city lights, and my agent called me and said, you have an audition for Friends, you have to get there before 6.30 to Warner Brothers. And I'm on the 405 at the 101 thinking, i got to see if I can even make it in time. And you're laughing because you know that, you know the world. So I get in there, I am the last person to audition for it at 6.30 p.m. And it goes well. And and four, 30 minutes later, my people called and said, you booked Friends, you start tomorrow. And I went, oh, oh crap, okay. And I actually, ironically, I had to do some voice work on a commercial that I had done, AMD Athlon commercial, and they had the studio set up for the next day. And I had to call and be like, I, I can't make it. And they were getting furious at me and I went, you can be as mad as you want. I'm not going to say no to friends because you need some VO work done on your spot. I'm going to go do friends. And then it sounds so stupid, but I remember showing up and going to craft service. And at the time, Krispy Kreme had just come out here and it was the rave, but there was only like two of them in the entire city. But I get to craft service and they have a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. And I'm like, holy crap, this show has money. This is unbelievable. <laughs> And then the funnest moment, it was me and I think his name was Patrick Bristow was the other guest star. And so 30 minutes before we go up in front of the audience, we do a speed run through of lines in makeup, which is you just run the lines quickly to just to kind of get the, the energy up and make sure you know your lines, right? We, get, we go to do that. I don't think one series regular knew one line. They were literally going line, 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 to the point where we finished and I walked out with Patrick and I went, this is going to be a disaster. We're getting ready to go in front of the audience and nobody knows any other lines. And then the second the curtain went up, Steve, I've never seen like it. They slipped into their characters. They were flawless. And I don't know if it's just they knew how to play their characters so well. I've never seen anything like it. I can't explain it. But they were they were flawless. They all just fell into their characters and did it perfectly. And it was the most, I've shot in front of I've done some multicams. That was the most rabid audience I've ever been in front of an, on any TV show ever. I mean, they were just losing their minds for the eight hours that we shot. It was crazy. Now, you've had a long career. Give me some of your highlights of your career. You know, it's, it's some people you worked with, or, or is there some people that you just sat there and went, man, this is why I go through all this I bullshit. Think it was after I saw you, I get an episode of The Crazy Ones, and... That week, I was ironically, I was I, I was I, I was friends with Tori Spelling, and she was doing a pilot, where they wanted me to be Jeannie Garth's husband for the pilot. So I was kind of doing that as a favor for them. My point is, is out of nowhere, I woke up to go to set the Crazy Ones, and I'm driving to Fox, and I go, "Holy crap! I'm working with Robin Williams today." Huh? Huh? And I I, I lost my breath in the car. I was like, "Oh my god!" He live at the Met is one of the reasons I got into acting. I mean, literally he's one of the re he's one of the things that shaped me as an actor. And then I get there. And of course he's the most gracious human being I've ever encountered in my entire life. He could not be kinder. Um, we actually sat and just talked about real life stuff. And it was two days uh, of the best days of my life working with him. And it's just so, it's always nice when your heroes, turn out to be even better 
than what you thought they, they were going to be like. Him, and then the other one was uh, Betty White. She was 89, and we're doing this scene, and she, oh, she's sitting across the bar from me, and she has to give this monologue, and she's holding my hands, and I completely lose track of, of being a character, and I'm just like, I'm looking at Betty White right in the eyes, and she's saying a monologue to me. And we did it twice, and the director went, oh, that's good for me. Everybody happy? And Betty went, can we do one more? And we went back, and about halfway through the monologue, she changed the inflection of one of the lines, and it was 10 times funnier. And I was just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. You're 89. And, I mean, the fact that she had it together that much, just it just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. Now, you said during the pandemic you uh, you were doing some commercials or a few years ago. Whatever you, was it hard for you to go back to commercials after doing TV? I mean, it's a moneymaker. We know that. But as an actor, do you sit there and go, man, I, I got to do the commercial, but then you have to say, I have kids. I have a wife. I, you know, I want to live. I want to live as an actor and like anything. Sometimes you have to do different stuff. But has it ever been hard, like especially like after Diva, if you had to do a commercial because you were on a popular show has it been hard for you mentally and how do you sit um, there and justify it i'm always so so happy about because you nailed it you got kids i got kids and i got a, i got a wife and i got a tech so i'm always genuinely happy that the idea of any money coming in but like the perfect example was when i was shooting mayans i shot monday tuesday wednesday and then i went to go shoot the dairy queen commercial on thursday and then went back to mayans on friday the stars aligned that i was able to do it but my point is, is i'm on mayans i've got my trailer we're on a set somewhere or, you know, we're out, we're at your location and it's just, it's a big, you know, it's a production, man. It's a production. And then I go to do the Dairy Queen commercial. There's no trailer. And I remember I had a fold out chair. We were in a parking lot and I was actually trying to get shade from the, one of the sides of the big rigs. I was like sitting there hunting cause I didn't want to be in the sun and I'm ho- hovering next to the side of this big rig trying to be in the shade. And I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? I'm, I'm 53 and I'm, 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 I'm trying to hide behind. What am I doing? So it, it's tough in that regard to go from one extreme to the other. But like any, like anything in this business, I mean, I've had theatrical gigs that were rough. And I've had commercials that were some of the best. I mean, the Matt Asselton, the Green Bay job, the referee job was one of the funnest times I ever had. Uh, <laughs> quick side note, they put us up in an Indian casino and that night, uh, as I was going out to bed, I hit a royal flush and a quarter and won a thousand dollars. And I'm like, "This is the best job ever in the history of jobs." Uh, but it depends mostly. It, it, it's a little tough. But when you've been doing it as long as I have, anytime you get a victory, it's a victory, man. I will take it. Now, because you've been in the commercials, you've been on Drop Dead Diva. Now you're on uh, CSI. Are you getting recognized? I mean, and do you are you one of those people that people will stop you, or do you get one of them's like? Uh, did we go to high school with you? Or, I mean, do you get recognized? Uh, when I was doing mostly commercials, it was a lot more of the people just staring at me, trying to figure out why they knew me. And I would get that often. I'm like, do we go to high school? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. Uh, and then they would always say it like an accusation. Are you an actor? Like I was trying to pull one over on them. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm an actor. Uh, but then once you start to get those roles, uh, people definitely know you. I mean, and Diva has a cult following. I was telling them, it's a funny story. We were in... This last uh, spring break, we were in San Francisco with my kids, and my son and I were sitting in an IHOP waiting for a table, and this little uh, older lady was kind of sitting next to me, and she finally leans in, and she goes, are you Lex Medlin? And I went, yeah, I am. Hi, how are you? And then she starts, she turns to her two, I think, granddaughters, and they start speaking in a foreign language. And I'm like, 
I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, where, where are you from? And she's like, well, I'm from Costa Rica. My daughters are from Brazil. And I'm like, and you know my work? And there was a pause. And then I went, drop dead diva. And they went, oh, yes, yes, yes. And they got all excited. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because I know it was popular uh, overseas. But there, and even just recently, I was, my daughter was trying to sell some stuff at one of the park events. And I was trying to help her out. And I hear, Lex? Lex? And I turn around and it's people I, I, I don't know who they are. And in my mind, I'm panicking, going, did I go to school? I should probably know who they are. And they're like, no, 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 we're, we're CSI fans. It's so, I think they were trying to process what I was doing in the park with my daughter, uh, you know, just doing normal human being stuff. Um, but there, there are those moments. I usually have my head down. My wife sees it more than I do. We'll, we'll be somewhere and my wife will be like, did you hear them? They're talking about you. And I'm like, uh, are, are they, what are they saying? Is it all bad? Don't be bad. And she's like, no, 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 no. They think you're great. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, I have a tendency not, and I got to remember that because I'll just go through my day-to-day life, you know, thinking I just, I got to get the laundry done. I've got to get to the dry cleaning and I don't think about any of it. Now, now, when do you start shooting CSI? What I just heard was December 1st. Then I heard the 4th, but I think it's going to be the 1st. We start season three. The question for me is how many episodes we're doing. Initially, before the strike went on so long, I was supposed to be a minimum of 15, but they wanted to do more depending on like the strike. The last I heard it might be 10. I don't know. I got to, when I get there, I'll find out. But more than anything, get season three in and then, you know, hope for season four that'll have it back to its regular kind of uh, uh, length. But step at a time. Got to do season three. Well, that's awesome, and you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you, you, we could catch up again. It's uh, it's great to see you doing well. And as I said, that you you had a very dark role in Criminal Minds. I still remember. I don't know if you you were you were a very a bad person. I remember that. Yeah, Alan Archer. You didn't know it was bad, but then I turned out to be bad. Yeah, those are always. And I was like, you. oh shit! The- Real quick, tell me about that. Tell me about that part before we go, because that's interesting. When you get a script as an actor, how great is that? When you sit there and you go, okay, I'm like, and then ooh. Ooh, I get to be that dick. Like you're, you're like, like you're, the, you're, you're the jerky guy in the, uh, in the commercials for the um, internet when you'd always go over and you just sit on the couch. So you play that character. But tell me about the criminal minds when you, when you look at a script. What is that like as an actor when you go, oh yes? Well, I mean that's exciting because a lot of times for guest stars on a lot of shows, you're, and I get it, I've done it, but you, your your whole role is in, in support of the main cast. And so a lot of times, I mean, I've had like when I did The Mentalist. I literally just said information. My character just was spewing out plot points and information, and it wasn't that exciting. So to get something like that, where you're like, there's a twist, and you get to play both sides, that's exciting. And then, like, if I'm if full disclosure, I mean, Owen French was fun for me. And I liked it, but he was the straight guy to some extent, and it's not it's not as fun. It just isn't. And I remember I was in Georgia, and uh, Kurtwood Smith, who was the dad on the '70s show, we had the same manager, and he was. We met for lunch because he was coming in to do a show, Resurrection, and we're talking. And he's he's played. I mean, he was the bad guy in RoboCop. He was phenomenal. Um, and we're talking. I said, you know, Kurt, when it's weird. This is the first time I've had the straight guy part, and it's not quite as fun. And I looked up at him, and he was looking at me like I was the biggest idiot on the planet. And he goes, Yeah, Lex, it's not as fun at all. Like, or what are you new, dude? Of course not. Playing the the bad guy or the jerk is is hilarious. And uh, so, yeah, anytime you get those scripts, you, uh, you get excited. Well, I want to thank you, man. So so the show, it's February, Sunday, February 18th, you're back on. That's what they're saying. Now, yeah, and it's, it's, it's really good. It's a solid cast. Like I said, solid cast crew, and the writing is, is, is amazing, and, uh, and I, love, I love the character. 
So people, go look up Lex on IMDb. Go back and watch all his work. He's been in a ton of stuff. You'll enjoy him. Even I Googled the commercials. You can put Lex Medlin commercials, and you see you can find the Aaron Rodgers commercial. One of them got pulled, but it's not the one with the snowman. You had a big snowman. That's still there. But uh, but people, so check him out. And uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 980 episodes there. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk, and on Facebook, Cooper Talk Radio. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.